Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> saying that feels like, you know, for me it's like saying bah humbug, because it is. I'm not a real fan of New Year's. I'm not a real fan of much, as you guys have learned over the holiday deals. No, I am. I'll be a big fan of what happens today on the football field. But just saying Happy New Year is a big change for me. So I do want to say to my wife, see, honey, I can change. It can happen. Uh, I think all the hype and all the optimism and all the positivism of New Year's is pretty delusional. I think it's like almost like a, um, a collective psychosis, a collective insanity that, that our country and the world goes through every year. Uh, it's almost like Jim Jones kind of stuff, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid kind of stuff. But to show that I have changed and to show that I am into Happy New Year's now and I'm into Advent now, I, I picked an uplifting passage for us this New Year's because I, I wanted to encourage optimism into the world. I wanted to spread optimism all over the world. I wanted to fill us with good thoughts about ourselves and about others. I, I desire to help spread spiritual positivism into Waco, uh, to see uh, renewal and to see uh, spiritual growth. So uh, I hope you enjoy this text. It is for all the hype, all the optimism, all the positivism you can muster and think and push into Waco. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from First uh, Chronicles, verse uh, chapter thirteen. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, with every leader, and David said to all the assembly of Israel, "If it seems good to you, and from the Lord our God." Let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let us bring the ark of God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebahamoth, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all, the Israel, and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> and, uh, and David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song and, and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the, ox, the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down, uh, because he had put his hand out to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, and he said, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of God remained in the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom 
and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So there you have it. Positivism, optimism, wonderful thoughts for you and for the new year. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would uh, shine on the page. We ask that you, by your spirit, uh, we are set free. And because we're set free, may we be free indeed. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning, would the freedom, the wonder... The reality of what you've done come crashing into our lives in a fresh way, in a breakthrough kind of way, in a, in a breaking down kind of way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this story is one of the most unpopular stories in all the Bible. Uh, it's right up there with killing the Canaanites. It's, it's stunning. It's deeply disturbing. Uh, it raises too many uncomfortable questions about God, like, how could God do this? What kind of God does this? Does he do these things still? I think inside all of us there's this, this inner dungeon. There's this dark dungeon where we lock away all of our deepest fears about God. And this passage comes along and it walks down the staircase into that deep, dark dungeon with inside of you. And it walks up to the dungeon door and it flips the latch and it opens the door and it lets all your fears out like the Kraken. Gosh, and then there's poor Uzzah. I mean, he's only trying to help. He's not a mass murderer. He's not a Ted Bundy. He's not a Jeffrey Dahmer. He's not a Pol Pot. He's not a Hitler. He's not Stalin. He's not the dude that pulled the gun in the Fort Worth church. He's not abusing children or senior citizens in some special care facility. I mean, he's part of the worship team, he's in the band. Verses 1 through 8 are absolutely stunning. I want you to look at the text. Verses 1 through 8 describe what we call today a spiritual revival, a spiritual awakening. And I want you to see how huge this revival is, how massive this awakening is. This is an unprecedented event in the history of Israel. It's not localized. It's not localized to like a church like Redeemer or localized to a small group or a community group. It's not localized to a Sunday school or a a home. It's not localized to a neighborhood, a community, or a school, or a church. This is on the national level. Look at verse 1. It's impacting, verse 1, every leader in Israel. This is the king himself. This is all his military leaders, his political leaders, his economic leaders, all his advisors, it says, everybody. I mean, this is every influencer on Instagram. This is everybody. Then look at verse 4. It's all the people. All is pretty universal. All Israel is involved in this. And then you have verse 5. All of Israel from Egypt, so from the west, all the way to the furthest extremes of the kingdom. To the furthest extremes of the kingdom towards Babylon. So even down to the Nile and into Babylon, 
all of Israel in this whole massive area is involved. This is a bigger than any Billy Graham crusade. This is bigger than a promise keeper's men's rally. Like, do you remember the one in, in the National Mall in 1997? It was called Stand in the Gap, a sacred assembly of men, 44 guest speakers, 11 jumbotrons, 11 plus sound speakers, 24 generators, 210 phone lines, 130 stage lights, 1 million free Bibles, 1,500 portable toilets, men from every state, men from 106 countries. The crowd stretched for over a while, for over a mile. The Los Angeles Times says it's the largest gathering to ever gather in the National Mall. Over 500,000 people. They, they didn't want to give the amount because the mall people that make those have been criticized over and over again for their headcount. But they say, no, it, it's the biggest that's ever happened. More than, obviously, than a million man march. What's happening here is bigger than a year of Sunday services at the 16,000-seated Summit Arena in Houston to hear Joel Olstein. I mean, this is huge. Verses 1 through 8 are telling us that all Israel is seeking God. Can you imagine? All of Israel, all of Israel is, is seeking to build their life and their relationships and their country and their work, their schools around God. All of Israel is seeking to trust God and obey God. All of Israel is seeking to be devoted to God's law. All of Israel wants to be used by God in the world. All of Israel wants to create something that's never been created in the history of the human race, a Christian nation. All of Israel, the atmosphere, y'all, is spiritually electric. Look at verse 8. And David and all of Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. All of Israel is worshiping God. All of Israel is experiencing God. God is real in Israel. And then as one commentary says, and in two short verses, everything is shot to hell. I mean, an ox pulling the cart stumbles. It's an oxen, so it's a pair, and one of them or both of them stumble, pulling the other one. And the ark tips, and Uzzah, a worship leader, sees it tip and grabs the ark. Verse 10, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand out to the ark, and he died there before God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah, which literally means outbreak against Uzzah to this day. All of a sudden, it's called 911. <laughs> and just like that, the revival is over. Or is it? This passage is going to push us and challenge our notion of spiritual renewal. This passage is going to push us and challenge us in our notion of the Christian experience. It's going to push us and challenge us and flip us upside down in what we think sanctification is. 
and what we think holiness is and what we think experiencing God is and what we think spiritual victory and vitality and electricity is and what we think spiritual impact is or revival or, or awakening is. What if this passage is after real renewal after all? What if it's after you experiencing God truly? What if it's after genuine, solid joy and hope and freedom and peace and life and new life? What if it's after reshaping and reengineering and restructuring the mysterious places of your heart and it works itself out into your thinking and your feeling and your willing and your trusting? I want you to look at that. What if, what if this passage is really trying to reach you your home, your school, your neighborhood, Waco. Look at the last verse in the story, verse 14. And the ark of God remained in the household of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Do you see what's happening in, in verse 14? There's the last verse in the story. This is the conclusion of the story. The conclusion of the story, the story ends with real renewal. The story ends with blessing. It ends with deliverance. It ends with the wonders of God. It ends with the love and acceptance of God. It ends with the power of God. It ends with intrusions into our life from otherworldly places. It ends with spiritual blessings. It ends with renewal. The whole passage is moving to renewal. The whole passage is moving to Real, genuine encounters with God. But if that's so, if that's where the passage is going, if that's where it's taking you, is that it takes the reader, it took the worshiper, it took him to verse 14. It's taking you and me to verse 14. All the energy, all the movement, all the action, all the divine activity in this passage is to take you to verse 14, to real renewal. If that's so, then what's wrong with David's spirituality in this text? What's wrong with Israel's revival here? What's wrong with Uzziah's or Uzzah's religious experience in this text? And let me turn the heat up just a little bit more. I'm going to ask two more questions. Why aren't people flooding into the church today? I don't mean Redeemer. I don't mean, I mean the church. Why aren't people packing in church services to hear a sermon today? Why aren't they beating down the doors and saying, when do you open? Please let us in. We've got to get in. And some of you are thinking, well, Jeff, it's really obvious because of passages like Uzzah. Maybe. Maybe that's the answer. It might be the answer. But this text begs to differ. Or maybe it's because like Uzzah, we think we can touch the law. Oh, that's a game changer. Wait, you say, Uzzah touched the ark. He didn't touch the law. Yes, that's true. Technically so. But the ark is not some 
magic relic, some sacred relic like Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, the ark's importance is not found in itself. The ark's importance is found in what it carries. So the question is, what does the ark carry? And the answer is the law of God, the Ten Commandments, written on stone tablets placed in the ark. So the ark is not something special. The ark is important, and the ark is special because of what it carries, and it carries the law of God. The ark carried what theologian Mike Horton calls, quote, the revelation of God's essential character. So in the law is the revelation. It's, it's what you cannot know and will not know unless God makes it known. And so in the law, in the ark, contained in the law is the revelation of God's essential character. It's not, he says, an arbitrary or abstract list of rules. It's not just thou shall not, thou shall do's. It's actually revealing the essential character of God, who God is and what he's like. All the wonders of his majesty and his wonders. The depths of his heart and his character. So what does the law reveal about God's essential character? Well, Horton answers. He says it reveals God as righteous, as loving, as holy, as good. And he goes on to say, and it reveals if God is to save someone, if God is to save a human being, if God is to save anyone on the planet, he must do so justly. In other words, the law cannot be set aside. So why can't the law be set aside? I mean, let's just answer that question because if we don't get that, we're not going to get what's happening here. Why can't the law be set aside? Because God cannot set aside himself. Because God cannot set aside his essential nature. Because God cannot stop being righteous. He can't stop being loving. He can't stop being good. He can't stop being holy. And this is where everything boils down to one singular problem. We are not. We are not righteous. We are not loving. We are not holy. We are not good. We cannot touch God who is. The law is revealing who God is, and Uzzah's problem was he's not, and he touched him. See, here's the problem with Israel's revival. Here's the problem with all of our Christian experiences. Here's the problem. Here's why people are not flooding the church today. Here's why people aren't packing into church services to hear a sermon today. Here's why we're so spiritually exhausted. Here's why we're so spiritually anxious, so spiritually depressed, or so spiritually superior, so spiritually hyped up. It's why we're so spiritually unmoved. We're not touched. We're not reached. We're not renewed. Here, all that's going on in this passage, all that's going on in the church today, the reason why is because we're just like Uzzah. We think we can touch the law. We think we can touch God. We think the law is touchable. We think the law is doable. We think the law is keepable. We think we can please God. We think we can love God. We think we can love people. 
we think we can, we make the law attainable. We make the law attainable to change a life. We make the law attainable to be our ideal self, to be the ideal mom, to be the ideal man, to be the ideal student, to be the ideal athlete. We think we can become the ideal human being. We think we can take the law and make it achievable and attainable and doable. We can touch it and it's an activating power. It's an activating source. It's an activating agent of life change. It is a way to activate and improve your life. It's a way that you can make yourself acceptable. It's a way that you can change your life and renew your life and experience God. When the law becomes touchable in our lives, when the law becomes touchable in your relationships, when the law becomes touchable in the church, when the law becomes touchable in preaching, you know what happens? We burn out spiritually. In other words, churched people become unconverted. And unchurched people are driven from the church. I'm not the only one saying this. This text is not the only one saying this. More and more people are starting to figure this out. More and more people are starting to understand that the issue with the impotency of the church, the powerlessness of the church, is not more spiritual victories. It's how we've been handling the law. In his book, Vanishing Grace, its award-winning author, Philip Yancey, says, the church's mishandling the law today has a huge hand in the decline of the church in Europe and America. We have a moralistic crisis going on, he says. When the law becomes touchable in our lives, our relationships, the church, the Bible, our preaching and our teaching, we turn preaching and teaching into good advice, not good news. We turn preaching and teaching into self-help and scolding. And we create two-tiered Christians and two-tiered spiritualities, those that are successful in doing whatever technique and whatever law and whatever, whether it's a Ten Commandment or it's a little spiritual law like having a quiet time or being fully devoted follower of Jesus. We create this two tiers of those who do it and those that don't, those who are on the A team and those who are on the B team. And it all determines on you touching the law. Or it might be that someone especially anointed, can touch the law for you and give you the power. The Oxford English Dictionary defines a sermon this way. It, it's interesting, and it's important to realize this. The dictionary lexographers are not giving their opinion about words. All they're doing is they're taking a word, and they're seeing how it's used in a culture. That's why new words enter the dictionary, like all the ones that are memes and stuff like now that are coming in, Right? And funky sayings, and we're like, oh, wow, I can't remember. I had it on the tip of my tongue. I forgot it. Maybe Ty could help me later. But here's the deal. The Oxford English Dictionary, taking the pulse of the culture, the church and unchurched people defines preaching this way. Are you ready? A discourse spoken or written on a serious subject containing instruction and exhortation. It continues. A long or tedious discourse or harangue. It continues. To utter a serious or earnest exhortation, especially a moral one. And then this one with a little edge to it. To give a moral or religious, 
to give moral religious advice in a self-righteous, condescending, or obtrusive way. Well, there you go. Yikes. Bishop Allison of South Carolina says, now lexographers, remember, they're just giving the definition that we already have of it in our culture. So he goes on to say, it's virtually impossible today to find a single definition of preaching that leads one to believe that preaching, that the preaching of a, serv- a sermon is a life-giving event. No one sees preaching as a life-giving event. If you and I don't see preaching or the Bible or Christianity as a life-giving event, no wonder we don't flood in. But what if we did? What if? What if the vision of the Bible and of church is that it's life-giving? People would beat down the door. So something's wrong. He continues, Native Americans in Quebec call the wooden stick, this is Bishop Allison, which is the wooden stick, the club they use to club salmon to death. You know what they call that wooden stick that they club salmon to death? A priest. I mean, we could say pastor, preacher, teacher, Christian, Could there be, he says, any more dire judgment on Christian churches than this? Clearly, we have failed to teach the good news of the Christian faith and have rather reduced the expression of Christianity to scolding, end quote. When the law becomes untouchable, the churched become unconverted. And the unchurched are driven from the church. So how do we change? I mean, how do you experience God? How do you have a a real, vibrant, electric spirituality? How do you have what we call today theologically sanctification, spiritual growth, genuine, authentic, real spirituality? How do you get genuinely reached and renewed? How do your kids get reached and renewed? How does your marriage get reached and renewed? How does your relationships, a church get reached and renewed? How does a home, all kinds of places in Waco, how does Waco get reached and renewed? How do we stop, in other words, touching the law? Make it touchable, make it doable, make it attainable, make it achievable. Treat it like it can make us holy and righteous and good and loving. Treating it like it can activate God in our life. Treating it like it can activate the Holy Spirit in our life. Treating it like a light switch. A magic relic. The answer from the text is stunning. It's shocking. It's so counterintuitive. But the answer from the text, how do we change? How do we stop touching the law? The answer from the text is, When the law kills you. When the law levels you, strikes you down. Verse 9, and when Uzzah put out his hand, in other words, he put out his unrighteous, unloving, unholy, ungood hand. 
to take hold of the ark, which we know is really to take hold of the law, which is to take hold of God's essential character, God himself. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. Well, why would, why would the anger of the Lord be kindled against Uzzah? Because God cannot stop being himself. He cannot stop being righteous. He can't stop being loving. He can't stop being holy. He can't stop being good. And so who he is breaks out. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down. Don't miss this. The law strikes him down. The law kills him. The law levels him. The Apostle Paul, if, if he were here today, and he sort of is, he writes 1 Corinthians. Um, and in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, chapter 3 and 4, this is what he says. He interprets, I bet he's interpreting this event. He has this event in mind. I'm sure he does. He's a Bible scholar off the charts. This is what he says. He's interpreting what happens to Uzzah. He's interpreting the law's real function in life. Here it is. Now, the ministry of condemnation and death that's carved in letters on stone, what would that be? The law. He said it came with such a glory to Moses that the people were saying, cover your face, we can't take it. Right? What Paul is saying about the law in 1 Corinthians, and what Paul says about the law in Romans, what Paul says about the law in Ephesians, what Paul says about the law in Galatians, what Paul says about the law just about everywhere is that the law has a God-given ministry. It's called a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death. It has a God-given ministry. It has a God-given gift. It has a God-given task to condemn us, to strike us down, to actually show us who we really are. That's why folks have called the law in church history a mirror. It, it, it shows you who you are. It's the, only, it's the only agent in the world that's going to be straight with you, that's going to tell you the truth about yourself, that's going to tell you you have a cliffhanger on your nose when you have a cliffhanger on your nose. It's the only thing that's going to tell you this is what you're like. In other words, the law's function is to take your, the corpse of our sinful self, to take that corpse and show you it's a corpse. It's to take that corpse of the sinful self and seal it in its tomb where it belongs because it cannot be recovered. The law has a glorious ministry. The law has a God-given ministry. This this is the ministry of the law. This is real renewal. You becoming aware of who you are. One commentary writes, the law is not a checklist we keep. It's a benchmark we fail. Whenever someone reads God's law, however loyal they are, however kind they are, however thoughtful, generous, or loving they are, their response can only be, I am a sinner. I have nothing to bring to you, God. I have nothing to contribute to you, God. I have nothing to say to you, God. My mouth is shut. The way is shut for me. This 
is the spiritual experience that happens to David. I want you to look at verse 12. And David was afraid of God that day and said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? There are, thousands and th- there are hundreds of thousands of people at this national revival. Only David's response is recorded. And you know what that means? It's the right one. And I also want you to note this. I don't want you to miss this. David is a believer in Yahweh, so this is not an unconverted, an unchurched person having this experience. This is a church person having this experience. So this tells you this is what genuine spirituality looks like. This is what genuine spiritual renewal looks like. This is what sanctification looks like. This is what life change looks like. It's happening to David. He's telling you what's real. He's telling you what it looks like. He's telling you this is what it is. So what's his response? What does real renewal look like? Here it is. Here it is. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? Let's fill in the right words here. How can I bring the law home to me? How can I touch the law? And David's answer is absolutely healing. David's answer is absolutely life-giving. David's answer is absolutely spiritually electrifying. I can't. I can't. I can't activate God. I can't activate his love. I can't activate his acceptance. I can't activate his blessings. I can't activate him. I can't heal myself, I can't fix myself, I can't cure myself, I can't deliver myself, I can't save myself, I can't. I can't make myself righteous, I can't make myself loving, I can't make myself good, I can't make myself holy, I can't. I can't be the ideal mother, I can't live up to my parents' expectations, I can't live up to my own expectations for myself, I can't change my life. I can't. And healing and renewal, that's the mystery of the law. That's the God-given work of the law. I can't. The law brings home to you and me. It makes very clear to you and me. It doesn't just tell you because that's all. If it only told us, we would never get it because it would only be an intellectual exercise. Yeah, you're right. I'm a sinner. But what the law has a unique ability to do is make you feel it. And some of us, many of us are feeling it. And here's the deal. If you were to look around at Christian teaching today, and if you were to look around at Christian churches today, you're feeling it, but you think something's wrong with you. But the Bible is telling you, you are spiritually coming alive. I can't is the language of renewal. Are you ready? You ready for the power of renewal? I can't. But the priest can. Look at verse 13. So David, what did he do? His answer is, I can't bring it home to me. I can't bring the law home to me. I can't bring God home to me. So David did not take the ark home. 
into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Again, David's response is being highlighted. He's the only one that's responding because he's the only right response in the whole text. Obed-Edom is a priest. David took the ark, David took the law to the priest. This is just, this is so, like I've seen this text for like, I feel like I've read this thing my whole life and I'm seeing it in a new, in an incredible way. So sorry if I get tickled by this whole thing. Because it's, it's, it's incredible. Of, there's an application of God's ten laws. There's an application. And the application to the ark was this. Only a priest can carry the ark. Only a priest can carry the law. It was embedded into the application of the Ten Commandments. Everyone in Israel knew that. Guess what? Uzzah was not a priest. So the picture being painted for you and me and the picture being painted for Israel, the picture being painted for spiritual awakening, renewal and revival and sanctification, life change, whatever you want to say, the picture being painted here is this. The law levels you. I can't. And then leads you to the priest. The priest can. The law levels, then leads to the priest. That's its God-given, spectacular ministry. Look at the last sentence of the story, verse 14. The Lord blessed the household of Edom, Obed-Edom, all that he had. The last word of the story is not Uzzah's death, it's not the law, but blessing. It's experiencing God. It's spiritual awakening. It's being deeply reached and renewed. It's authentic, genuine joy, life, freedom, power, peace, new life, friendship, beauty, glory. It's electric. But don't miss this. The blessing is only found in the priest. I can't priest can. Years later, there's another priest, and this priest takes Uzzah's place. In other words, this priest, this priest that comes later after this story, the, the true David, the true Adam, the true Israel, the true Uzzah, he takes Uzzah's place, and he touches the ark, he touches the law on behalf of all the Uzzahs in the world. And he becomes the worst ark abuser on the history of the planet. He becomes the ultimate lawbreaker, the ultimate murderer, the ultimate worst adulterer on the face of the earth, the ultimate abuser, the worst, meanest, angriest, defilest, anxious, worried person on the planet. He becomes the worst worrier, money worshiper. He becomes the worst controlling person, the meanest person, the most bitter person, the most unforgiving, slanderous, gossipy person. He becomes the worst self-righteous person, the worst self-activating person, the worst self-reliant person, the worst self-trusting person. He becomes the ultimate serial sinner. In other words, the priest becomes you. And God strikes him down on the cross so he doesn't have to strike you down. So he can give you blessing, blessing, blessing. 
all the days of your life. And I want you to get this. I want to get this. You've done nothing but contribute sin. The law levels you. I can't. And then the law leads you to the priest. The priest can. That's true Christianity. 